Okay, we'll pray for enlightenment from the Spirit to make it specific what he's saying tonight. Well, this has been a fabulous day. Uh, you know, just thinking, we have no idea what this one day in the people gathered here in the impact that it's going to make for eternity. All we can do is walk in obedience to where God sends us, the opportunities he lays before us, and see the power of his spirit working through, but, but just mobilizing, focusing, sharing, praying, worshiping together has just brought God into this mist for a purpose beyond what any of us can envision. And uh, as I was, I was uh, preparing uh, for the message tonight, I just thank you for the blessing of being able to be here and just how enriching it's been to me. And, of course, I preach in churches all across the country. And, in fact, these uh, two paperback books are 75 messages from the Scripture on missions. You know, you talk to people, well... Yeah, the, the Bible says we're to do missions. Well, where? Well, Matthew 28, 19, 20, Great Commission and everything. Listen, the whole Bible is on the mission of God. I like Christopher Wright's observation. It's, it's not a biblical basis for missions. There's a missiological basis for the Bible. God had a mission, and so he revealed the word of God, his purpose, his mission of redemption for his church, his people to carry out. It's what the Bible is, is all about. But as I was uh, preparing for tonight, uh, just the message that uh, I'd been led to, to bring, I thought, I don't need to keep telling you people that the Bible tells us we should do missions or telling you about a lost world and the needs and everything. And, and so, so the message God uh, has led me to bring tonight is not what I'd prepared tonight, but... I really felt like we need to focus on, you know, we know missions. We know our responsibility for missions. We know the needs of a lost world. And you're seeking to be engaged. This is what all, this is all about is, is mobilization, continuing to expand uh, what we can do to touch a lost world. But maybe what God would have us to focus on is the personal equipping we need to be worthy vessels that God can use in what he uh, would have us to do. And uh, the passage I want to read tonight is in 2 Kings, the, the sixth chapter, uh, verses 1 uh, through 7. Uh, an interesting account. Uh, it's just almost perplexing in the Bible. It's interesting to read some of the, the commentaries about this, about Elisha, the miracle of making the axe head to float. So uh, reading uh, in the sixth chapter of Second Kings, now the sons of the prophets had said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he said, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. 
Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. It's uh, interesting, uh, you look at some Bible commentaries on this passage, there are those that just have nothing to say. So don't have a clue what this is about and why it was included in the Bible. You know, making the axe head float, the iron float. Well, I'm going to get back to that in just a moment, but... uh, you know, I, I've since, since, you know, my being brought up as a Christian in church and knowing the Bible pretty well and just, you know, in that Christian environment, have always known there's a spiritual power that's beyond ourselves. And when I was saved as a 10-year-old boy and, you know, and was to be baptized and the pastor was giving me an orientation and explaining that, Immersion in the water symbolized the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, but it was my, my belief and profession of faith that when Christ came into my heart and saved me and that we were doing this in, in obedience as a symbol, but I wasn't quite sure as a young boy that something mystical wasn't going to happen when I went under that water. Well, it was a meaningful experience, but... I was basically the same person, already been born again because I had trusted in Christ with that. A little different, a little later when I was in college and and called to pastor my first church, and this was exciting, you know, still a college student, going to get to preach and everything, but it's a little intimidating and overwhelming. And I was mature enough to know that I was ill-equipped for the task that I was confronted with, and desperately wanted some manifestation of God's power beyond my own ability. And at that ordination service, when they ask all the deacons in the church to come and pray over me and lay hands on me, you know, I thought of those Bible passages when the apostles laid hands and the Holy Spirit came with power and manifestations. And I was really longing, hoping something like that would happen meaningful experience, but it was me, same person, you know, and facing that task and everything. When we were commissioned to go to the mission field, uh, once again, you know, I knew this was just a formality. The church was setting us apart, recognizing us, would pray for us. But I desperately longed to just think in crossing the ocean that we would arrive in Indonesia Not the same person that left the states, but with a new empowering for the task that God had called us. Now, we were young and naive. We had no question about our call. I believe strongly in the gospel as the power of God into salvation. And I honestly envision we would arrive on the shores of Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, and the pages of Acts would just unfold once again with multitudes being saved every day. It was just a matter of them hearing the gospel and the power of the gospel will draw them to Christ. Well, talk about being disillusioned. And your disillusionment, Flowing into discouragement, despondency, 
They were totally indifferent to my message, if not antagonistic. And uh, I realized more than ever before that I needed something bigger than myself. I needed an anointing of God's spirit. I would read Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I knew without question the Holy Spirit had come into my life when I received Jesus Christ. And I want to know, where is that power? Why is it there evidence of the power of the Spirit in my witnessing to Indonesians or, or wherever? And I would read in the fourth chapter of Acts that with great power the Lord gave, gave power to the apostles as they witnessed to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and grace was upon them. And I knew this is a reality. This just wasn't for the apostles. This was the nature of God and his work. But I saw no evidence of it in my own life and I longed for evidence of that, that power. I would read in Ephesians that is, God would, Paul praying for the Ephesians. These weren't the apostles. These were ordinary believers like us that he would grant you to be strengthened with power by his spirit in the inner man. And I knew this was God's will for my life. It was something that he, he was making available for me, but where was any evidence of God's power? And I got over to Revelations 3 and read, Behold, I've set before you an open door that no man could, should shut because you have a little power and have not denied my name. And I, I found myself praying, Lord, just a little power. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not looking for great manifestations and signs and wonders, but could I just see something that could not be explained by my programs and activity in my work that had no explanation except the power of God. And I longed to see the power of God as the psalmist said, in a dry and thirsty land. I despaired unless I saw the power of the living God. I've seen God's power from time to time. You know, God has been good to, to bless. You know, I still stand amazed uh, when I think back to our experiences in Indonesia and 23 years on the mission field uh, of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, that ostracized from their family, you know, persecuted by their community, even their life threatened. What would compel a Muslim in Indonesia to step across the line and embrace faith in Jesus Christ with those consequences. There's no explanation for it. Certainly not my fluency in the language and persuasion and wisdom to convince them of the truth of Christianity. There's no explanation except the power of God that indwelt the message of the gospel. And I wanted to be conduit of the gospel pun intended, <laughs> a conduit of the power of God, not just perfunctorily carrying out strategies and programs, you know, without any evidence of the power uh, of God.
I think one of the most tragic verses of Scripture in the Bible is 2 Timothy 3.5. Having a form of righteousness, but denying the power thereof. And I don't want to be ugly and pronounce indictments on the church and American Christianity or, you know, the programs and promotions and things that we do, the perfunctory things. But where is the power of God? And over the years and working with missionaries all around the world, I know as well as anyone, we can do good things. Ministries, strategies, helping people, but others can do those things too. What they need more comes only from the power of God. And, uh, you know, so getting back to the story of the axe head, reading a, a sermon by Vance Havner, who I referred to last night, and he, he made the observation about the axe head, chopping wood. It's that little piece of sharpened iron that actually gets the work done, that represents the power of chopping wood. And he made the analogy that it's the power of God that was lost when he lost the axe head. And so I want you to think with me. Is there evidence of God's power in your life and witness? Even in our, our mission project, projects, where we go. You know, we would all readily acknowledge our inadequacy and how desperately we need a manifestation of God's power. But how do we reclaim it? What can we do that God finds us a worthy, but when I say worthy, I mean a broken vessel that's worthy to be entrusted with his power. Well, there's two observations Dr. Havner made, and then I'll uh, carry on from there with some application. But he said two things you need to realize about the lost axe head is it was borrowed. It didn't belong to him. It was from someone else. And we need to start with a very foundational principle in understanding there is no power in our ability. All of our training, all of our equipping, uh, all of our study, it's not our ability, but it's our availability. But the power belongs to God. He loans it to us when he chooses to manifest his power through us. And the second thing is, not only is it not ours, it is God's, but the second thing is you can be in the right place doing what God wants you to do and not have the power of God. It's no assurance he's going to bless with an outpouring of his spirit just because you're doing what you want to do. And I've seen a lot of missionaries who, who question, well, I'm not in the right place. I'm not in the right assignment. I don't see God working here. I need to move someplace else, find a more responsive field. I remember uh, doing a pre-furlough conference with a first-term missionary in our region who had gone to a very difficult assignment in a Muslim country, and uh, 
they had not had any success whatsoever. They had not discovered a, an opening man of peace to relate to and uh, community. They had been harassed, uh, been very difficult for their family. They were isolated. The children had been sick most of the term. And they were ready to go home to for furlough, have absolutely nothing to report. They were pretty discouraged. And in our debriefing, in our time together, they said, you know, we find ourselves thinking that maybe God could use us more effectively someplace else. Well, I totally sympathized with them. They were very gifted and devoted, and I could think of many places they could be used very effectively. So I began to suggest some assignments that they might pray about and consider when they came back from the States, back to the field, and they interrupted me and said, now, Jerry, we want you to understand we're willing to come back here next term. Well, I was incredulous because I just jumped to the conclusion. They were intimating that, you know, they'd really like to be someplace else. And I said, you mean you would be willing to face another four years in this assignment with the difficulties you've had, with the hardened barriers you're encountered, with no hope that you're going to find response, you would come back here for four years? And they said, yes. When we got here after language study and realized what we were up against, we had to reconcile ourselves to the fact that God had not called us to success or personal fulfillment, but to obedience. And if this is where God wants us, we don't want to consider anywhere else. Who tells us that we're entitled to success and response? Sounds like a world's values to me. Who convinces us that it's about our own fulfillment or gratification? No, it's about obedience. And only those who are obedient are going to find themselves worthy of God's blessings. I've struggled with, with this and just a desire to see the power of God in my life. I've, I've, it's just all my life, it's just, Lord, I just want to see something that cannot be explained except for your spirit, through what you lead me to do in obedience uh, to your will. I remember uh, preaching... <laughs> in the market area on the streets in India, and I, honestly, I'm not very comfortable with that. I mean, I'm just not really into street preaching, out, you know, just laying it out there. But, but my Indian, Indian part brothers, brothers, man, they loved it. They'd just get out there singing with their drums and tambourines, say, all right, Jerry, your time to preach. Tell them about Jesus. And there they were, some of them heckling and, you know, few paying attention and many just kind of ignoring us and just preaching to the air and, you know, people walking by. And uh, we were in a village uh, and I was preaching one day and, and a man <laughs> steps right in front of me and, and interrupts, has a great big tumor on his, his shoulder. And he says, can your God heal this? Now, I don't have the gift of healing, folks. I wish I did, because I encounter a lot of things like this. But what are you going to say? Well, I'm not sure. Have you had any medical attention there? Or, Well, maybe he can't. No, you've been talking about sovereign almighty God. You don't have any answer, but yes. 
Now, whether or not he will, you don't know it, but you better say yes if you believe in the God that you're preaching on. Well, we prayed for them. There's no visible uh, effect or change or anything, and that kind of disrupted what we were doing, and so we kind of closed down, and we went to the little church, the pastor's house, and we were having tea. And a couple of hours later, this fellow, he knew where we were from. He came, and that tumor was gone. And that happened right in the center of the marketplace. And you know, the book of Acts, you read about manifestations of signs and wonders. But there's no guarantee that God is going to choose to do it. But you never quit stepping out in faith and believing and praying and giving God a chance to manifest his power when he should choose. I learned this from a a very humble Indonesian lady in the little church where we were working in East Java, and she was illiterate. She was actually the household helper in our household helper's house, you know. She just, for some food and a place to eat, elderly, and she had a, a big tumor in her stomach. She looked like she was nine months pregnant, but she was an elderly lady. And uh, she had become a believer, And one Sunday, she arrived at church, and her waist was as slim as could be, had that sarong wrapped around her, and everybody was just amazed. Said, Busum, when did you have surgery? You know, we didn't know you were. Said, no, I haven't been to the hospital. I couldn't afford uh, to go to the doctor. Well, what happened? She said, well, I was just sitting in my room so filled with joy that I knew Jesus, and I wanted to pray. And then she said, and Pastor Jerry has never taught me to pray, you know, just right there. I mean, she was illiterate. I, I just, you know, and personally followed up on her much and said, I didn't know how to pray. So my hands were on my stomach and I just called the name of Jesus, 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 Jesus. And that tumor disappeared. It's really simple. You know, it's all about him, but his power is real. We were having a a baptism in one of the villages, and uh, there were 16 that had, uh, you know, prayed and said they would become followers of Christ, and I was preparing for baptism going on uh, a Tuesday night, and uh, Pak Shamsul, one of the men, he was up in his 80s, elderly man that was to be baptized, wasn't there. So I asked about him, and uh, I said, well, he's, he's, he's very sick. He, he's in a coma. He has a high fever. He's dying. And, uh, of course, no medical help available in these, these villages. And, uh, and so I suggest, well, we need to pray for him. And uh, I'd given them Bibles, told them to read the Bible, do what it said, you know, <laughs> and believe it, do what it said. And so we started to pray, and one of the smart alecks in the group raised his hand and said, well, I've been reading the Bible. When they prayed for the sick, they laid hands on them. And so I saw that as a teachable moment, said, I acknowledge, well, that's true, but I wanted them to understand, you can pray anytime, anywhere, and God hears you. I'd already convinced them they were supposed to do what the Bible said do. And so they were getting up, filing out the door to go to Pak Shamsu's house. It was kind of like... 
hey, I'm your leader, wait for me, you know. <laughs> uh, this is what we're going to do. And they gathered around his bed, and he, he was. He was deathly sick, burning with a fever, was practically comatose. It wasn't anything emotional or dramatic. They just all put their hands on him and just said, pray, God, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would heal him, and went back to the, where we had gathered. Now, I knew I'd be coming back for baptism, and I knew, now, he's going to die. How am I going to explain to these new believers, you know, why God didn't answer their prayer? And, well, you know where I'm going with that. Got back the next week. There was Pak Chamsu alive and healthy and ready to, ready to be baptized. And... Um, you know, God, I'm, I'm kind of slow. God just has to keep knocking me over the head to tell me, you know, that, that his power is, is real and it's available and we're nothing without it. And we should always be desperate for his power and plead for his power, but be the vessel that God can entrust with his power. Now, why did this young man lose the axe head? Well, you can picture this group of young theologians, seminary students going down, all of them with an axe, chopping wood, everything. Do you imagine there was a little competitiveness in chopping down those trees? Who's the strongest? Who's going to be the first one that can yell timber? You know, kind of look at me and so forth. A little, little pride in that. I remember one of our furloughs one winter, I went out, uh, uh, my, my brother-in-law, Bobby's uh, uh, brother-in-law had uh, chopped down a big tree on his farm for firewood and it had dried and we needed to, to chop and split some wood and so I went out with him. He a, was a big old hulk of a guy, about 6'3", 250 pounds and went by and got his little brother, Connie Mack, who was... Uh, you know, about 6'5", just weighed about 230. And, uh, you know, so here they were with an ax. They'd, they'd make a little split in each of the, the sections of the log, put a wedge in it, and they would pick up a 20-pound sledgehammer and make full circle swings and hitting that, seeing which one of them could split the log in one lick. Well, I didn't want to be a little wimp, you know, over there, so I... I tried that and pulled my back at the very first swing and went around the whole holidays with it. You know, just the competitiveness, you know, of working, it had to be there. Certainly, we're not competitive in fulfilling the mission of God in our churches. We're never measuring ourselves by anyone else, what they're doing, the attendance they have, how many they baptize, you know, what we're doing. If we're doing more this year than last year, you know, whether or not we're growing. At our mission meetings in Indonesia, when we'd gather once a year from all around the country, uh, all the church planners had a time when they'd have to give to report, you know. Had they started a church that year? How many churches they'd started and how many... Uh, believers have been baptized or kind of report on who they were discipling, the leaders they were training. And, you know, it was a time to, for people to recognize and praise you for the work that you were doing. But I'll never forget those years 
I didn't have anything to report. Not only was no new churches started, a few of them had kind of unraveled and disappeared. You know, and here was my fellow church planner, Carl over here, reporting, started three new churches this year and just praised the Lord they'd been working for years. Sure, I praised the Lord. I was happy for his work, but you know, that reflected on me. It's hard to get away from pride and recognition, you know, Competitive. We would never acknowledge competing with others in what we do to serve God in missions. But folks, God will not share his glory. And we'll be working in our own strength and our own power. You know, in competing with others. The pride of just what we, we, uh, we, we do. But you know, there's uh, another reason I think he lost the axe head is he's working too close to the edge of the water. And if he had not been close to the edge of the water, when the axe head came off, it had just fallen right there on the ground. And the analogy I want to make here is we as Americans, as modern-day Christians, even as missionaries, sometimes are a little too close to the worldliness we were supposed to leave behind. When we're called to walk in holiness, separated from the things of the world. You know, I, I, I used to get amused, but it's really sad. And the missionaries we used to send out, a lot of their questions and discussions, well, what kind of house am I going to have to live in? Is there going to be cheese in the marketplace that I can buy or, you know, or... <laughs> There's going to be bluebell ice cream available. You know, it gets ridiculous sometimes about the, the, the things that we think we need and, and we have to have. And the entertainment and the recreation that we need. Uh, when I was working in India, I remember an article in the Delhi paper. This was some years ago. The government had launched an environmental project to clean up the Ganges River from its glacial source in the Himalayas down to the Bay of Bengal because billions of cubic yards of industrial waste were being spewed into the water and, you know, and just the, the villages, the lack of sanitation and hygiene and, you know, defecating and washing their animals and, in the river and, and partially burned corpses in the holy cities of Varanasi being thrown into the waters and everything. And the article went on to say that the, the greatest obstacle to that environmental project was the attitude of the populace that declared the Ganges is holy and cannot be polluted because it's a manifestation of the Almighty. And washing in the waters of the Ganges can cleanse you of all of your sins. You thought, that's pretty ridiculous. It can't be polluted because it's holy. But you know, there are a lot of Christians that say, I'm a born-again Christian made holy by the blood of Jesus. And we can fill our minds with garbage of entertainment and movies and world, worldliness and think, well, it doesn't really affect me. But it does. 
And God is not going to entrust his power to a vessel that's unholy, that's not separated from the world and given entirely for him. There's a third reason I think this young man lost the axe head is he knew it was coming loose. Now, you guys know, you ever chopped with a, a hatchet or an axe? I can remember as a Boy Scout, you know, chopping limbs off a tree and everything. Starts this little, little shake, little wobble, you know it's loose, and you think, okay, but one more lick, I'm going to have this limb cut off, and there he goes, and there goes the axe head. You know when an axe head is coming loose. But he neglected to do anything about it. And there it went into the water and was lost. Well, how do you get it back? How do you recover the accent? How do you get the power of God in your life that's so desperately needed for the mission to which God has called us? Well, let's follow the, the story here. What's the first thing he did? Alas! <laughs> you know, he hollered out. He acknowledged it was lost. You know, I, I, I've, I've shared this many times and, and thought about it. If I'd been that guy chopping that tree by the water and the axe head fell out, my immediate reaction would be to kind of look around. Did anyone notice, you know, <laughs> seeing if I could reach down, if I could get it back? I mean, it's embarrassing for anybody to know I'd been so foolish that I lost the axe head in the water. No, he just laid it out there. Alas, it's lost. You see, you've got to acknowledge to God. You can't carry on a pretense. You've got to say, Lord, I need more of you. There's something that I need in my life. If I'm going to be used effectively to make an impact on a lost world, if this mission trip is going to make a difference, if it's going to be something more than just passing out food or teaching people, Lord, we need to see the manifestation of your power because we don't have it and we're not adequate and we need it. Acknowledge what we need, that we've lost it. The second thing he did was ask for the master's help. Master, it's lost. He called for him to come and help us. And you know, that's exactly why the Lord puts us in difficult situations like that so that we will look to him for what we need and what we've lost. And then the third step is we've got to let the master do what he will, however he needs to work in our hearts and our lives. Uh, you know, Notice the first thing he did. He asked the young man, where was it lost? And that's what he will confront us with. Where did we lose it? Where did we go astray? Where did we fall short? Where, where did, what have we neglected in our life? Is it because we've lost the devotion to spend time with him in our knees and in prayer, seeking him? day by day in the word? Is it when we became discouraged and allow the, the evil one to just put doubts in our hearts 
Is it maybe a, a severed relationship that in our pride that we haven't humbled ourselves and been reconciled and, and made right? Is it because we've become attracted to, to things of the world and compromised uh, our walk with him and our holiness? You know, that's what God's going to do. He's going to lead us to understand and recognize what we're missing, where we've lost it, why we don't have that manifestation of power in our life. And the next thing that he did, the fourth step, the Bible says that he, he broke off a branch and threw it in the water. Now, you know why he did that? If you do, I wish you'd tell me. I, I don't have a clue, you know, what... <laughs> Why, why, he, why, he, why he did that, what that have, had to do with it. But out of my own experience, I would just make an assumption that I think it has something to do with brokenness. That before we can recover God's power and be a vessel for God's power, we've got to be broken. We've got to be humbled. And we've got to recognize that we are an unworthy vessel. There's no vestige of pride in ourselves and our ability or what we're doing. And when he brings us to that place of brokenness, he's going to say just like he did to the young man, take it up. It's yours. It's yours. Jesus said in John 7, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Is there a form of righteousness but lacking any manifestation and evidence of God's power in your life? I'm not saying don't continue to do good things, go on mission trips, share Christ. Keep praying for those that need healing, whether you see any evidence of not. But become that vessel that God wants to restore in his power to you. Just a few thoughts in conclusion. What happened once this young man recovered the axe head and got it back? You know what I think? I think he moved away from the edge of the water. He said, I'll just find another tree where I won't lose it if it falls off. I think when he felt that axe head beginning to wobble, he didn't neglect it anymore, but he stopped and he dealt with it. I remember when uh, growing up, we had kind of uh, some acreage, and my dad had this pretense of being a farmer from his upbringing and wanted me to train me with that work ethic, which I thoroughly detested, and, you know, and uh, he wanted to split some fence posts for our pasture, and we could have gone and bought some fence posts, you know, and put them up. No, we had to split this log, saw this log, split fence posts and everything, and and uh, when we weren't working with the axe, I noticed he put it in a bucket of water. And I thought that was kind of strange. You wouldn't leave an axe in a bucket of water. I mean, it would rust. 
But he explained that he put it in the water when he was working with it because the water would cause the wood to swell up and keep the axe head tight. And I would just suggest when you sense losing that intimacy with God and that manifestation, that awareness of his guidance and presence in your life and manifestation of power, it's time to go soak your head. To soak your head in the word. Get on your knees in fasting and prayer. And you don't presume to go to the work of the Lord. You don't presume to fulfill his mission. You don't presume to take the gospel cross-culturally. Until you've made that relationship with him. What it ought to be. And worthy of a manifestation of his power. Would you bow with me as we pray? Lord, we know we need something beyond ourselves. We can formulate the strategies. We can make the plans. We can gather the resources. We can mobilize the people and do a lot of things in a lot of places that will do a lot of good. that'll never make a difference unless the power of your spirit is in it. And Lord, we need to be those vessels of your power. Lord, we need something beyond ourselves. And I pray that you would make us desperate for your power power of your Holy Spirit to empower our witness. That power of your Spirit that without our plannings or premonition just overflows from our lives like springs of living water that others see Christ in us. A power that gives us boldness to step out to faith, to pray for the alcoholic, the addict, and to see the manifestation of your power, healing and bringing wholeness. To minister in the power of your spirit to people in Haiti and Africa that have no hope, that have no medical care, that are destitute and dying, that long to see what only the power of Jesus Christ can yes. give them. And Lord, if their only channel and access to your power is through the presence of Jesus Christ dwelling within us, oh Lord, empower us, unleash that power through us. And may we be a vessel that's worthy of your power. That will be manifested not to our pride, our credit, for our testimony, but Lord, only for your glory that a lost world might know you. May they see the reality and power of transformed lives becoming a conduit of your power 
to a lost world. In Jesus' name, amen.